Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, May 28th, 2021. We are pre-taping a show to be aired this Monday, May the 31st, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 58th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Pedro Gatos and bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002. Has been investigating and seeking to present genuine, truth-seeking perspectives of how U.S. foreign policy impacts majority populations around the world. We also seek to identify other human-generated behaviors that either create or aggravate human misery outcomes in the world that by definition are preventable and therefore reversible. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is, too often, we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for becoming the foundation for building our worldview understandings upon. Consistent with Dr. King's views on foreign policy, our foreign policy reveals the character of our nation. However, it is presented to the U.S. public as how we would like it to be instead of reflecting and reporting the objective reality of what transpires in the countries we have such a large determinant impact upon. Tonight, we ask you to judge your perceptions of Venezuela and U.S.-Venezuelan relations with our bringing light into darkness, well-vetted presentation on current issues concerning Venezuela and U.S. relations with our special guest, Roger Harris. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is 91.7 KOOP, right here in the capital city of Austin, Texas, streaming live at koop.org. Today is Friday, May the 28th, 2021, and we are pre-taping a show to be rebroadcast on Monday, May the 31st, 2021, which is Memorial Day. I will introduce our very special guest shortly, but I just wanted to create the context for our show tonight, which is going to be mainly on Venezuela, U.S. relations. Last month or so, the special rapporteur 
And of course, special rapporteurs are independent experts appointed by the UN Human Rights Council that mandate and monitor, advise, and publicly report on human rights situations in specific countries. And in this UN Rapporteur report on human rights, they called for an immediate end to the United States and allied sanctions on Venezuela saying they've had a devastating humanitarian toll and cut the flow of medical supplies amid the COVID-19 crisis. This, in a preliminary report by the rapporteur Alina Dohan, she's a UN special rapporteur on the quote-unquote the impact of unilateral coercive measures, published on Friday, the Friday before the 13th of February this year. Anyhow, she went on and found that the sanctions on a range of Venezuelan industries and institutions have resulted in economic and humanitarian calamities for the entire population. You know, we've spoken clearly about just between, what, 2017 and 2018, according to the Center for Economic Policy Research team led by Dr. Mark Weisbrot, that some 40,000 Venezuelans died that that was attributed to the U.S. sanctions. And this is well before COVID. And let me just digress for just a second because it's important. There's so much ink given to the accusations that Venezuela is profoundly undemocratic and is run by a dictator. And we will be addressing all of that tonight to show that it's just rhetoric rather than substance. But that aside, not a mention about 40,000 deaths that's been documented by a very prestigious think tank of sort, Center for Economic Policy Research, in just a matter of a year or two from the sanctions itself. Not a mention. The American public is completely in the dark if they rely solely on our mainstream media on this important human rights issue. But anyhow, returning to the rapporteur, visiting Venezuela, as she did, was between February 1st and February 12th of 2021 to assess the impact of unilateral sanctions on the enjoyment of human rights. Today, Venezuela faces a lack of necessary machinery, spare parts, electricity, water, fuel, gas, food, and medicine, she wrote. Attributing much of the shortages to the sanctions regime, she added some 2.5 million Venezuelans now face severe food insecurity. Billions of dollars in Venezuelan assets that could be used for medicine and vaccines remain frozen at foreign banks. Repeated refusals of banks in the U.S. and the United Kingdom and Portugal to release Venezuelan assets, even for buying medicine, vaccines, and protective kits, impedes the ability of Venezuela to respond to the COVID-19 emergency, the rapporteur said. The February 13th, 2021 article citing the rapporteur's comments goes on to say, with the hardening of the sanctions over the years, state revenues to Caracas have been slashed by a staggering 99%, leaving the country to live on just 1% of its pre-sanctions income. With ailing infrastructure and few ways to obtain replacement parts under the penalties, Venezuela's electricity lines currently operate at just 20% capacity, Duhan said, while the availability of chemicals needed for water treatment has dropped by nearly one-third. The UN Rapporteur concluded by urging the United States, the UK, and other allies, quote, to review and lift targeted sanctions in accordance with principles of international law, the rule of law, human rights, and refugees law, end quote. 
She also called on Washington to let up on secondary sanctions or penalties imposed on third parties seeking to deal with Caracas, saying such measures result in overcompliance with the sanctions regime from nations fearing reprisal from the U.S. Lastly, she noted that the American sanctions have been steadily ramped up since 2005, new measures being imposed in 2014, 2017, 2019, and again in 2020, as several U.S. allies followed suit, worsening pre-existing problems in Venezuela's highly oil-dependent economy. So with that being an introduction of sorts, I wanted to formally welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, Roger Harris. Roger, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you, Pedro. Glad to be there. Let me just share just a little bit of information. Roger has taught political science at a historically black college in Mississippi in the late 60s, was involved in the civil rights movement. He spent a number of summers community organizing with the East Harlem Tenants Council in New York City. He became a certified wildlife biologist. Subsequently, he joined an employee-owned environmental consulting firm and has been writing for some time in a very informed fashion on Venezuela and other topics. So it's a great privilege and honor to have you on. I've been reading a number of your pieces, and they're exceptionally well-written and a little bit witty, too, which I like, even though they're on such serious topics. But let me ask you, Roger, perhaps a good place to start from your perspective why is the United States so preoccupied with sanctioning and trying to remove Nicolas Maduro from the presidency of Venezuela? Yes, thank you for that question, because it really gets to the crux of the issue. And that is that the reason for the regime change plan by the United States government is not for the bad things that Venezuela is doing. Every country has some weak points and bad points, but it's for the good things that they're doing that in 2015, President Obama upped the sanctions on Venezuela, and he declared it an imminent and extraordinary security threat to the United States. And just stop there for a second and, yeah. re- and repeat that, and then tell us what that means or what, what constituted that finding by Obama. So an imminent and extraordinary security threat to the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this is a Orwellian inversion of reality. It, it turns things completely upside down. It's the United States that's a threat to Venezuela. The United States is blockading it. The Fourth Fleet is off the coast. It has military bases in Colombia, etc. But in a way, Venezuela was a threat uh, because it's a threat of what you might call a good example. And if you don't mind, I'd like to go into that just a little bit in detail and go back to 1998 when they had their presidential elections. And Venezuela had had a two-party system, not all that different from the U.S. two-party system. In 1998, a third-party candidate ran for the presidency. His name was Hugo Chavez. And he won and had an instituted what they called the Bolivarian Revolution. And it really was a revolution. That is, it changed things around completely. And I'm, I'm going to go into a little bit of detail, if you don't mind. But I want to mention the six characteristics I would highlight about the Bolivarian Revolution, because those are important to understand why Venezuela was a threat to the United States, the threat of a good example, a threat of an alternative to the problems that we have today, both at home and abroad. The first thing that Chavez did 
we think of him as a politician and as a military man. He came out of the Venezuelan military, but he was also an historian, similar to, well, Patrick, you know Howard Zinn, right? Um, you're familiar with Howard Zinn and people's history of the United States? Of course. Yeah, well, Chavez was sort of like that. He rewrote the Venezuelan history from the point of view of not of the slave owners, but of the slaves. Mm-hmm. And he created a new national identity. And this is something that's useful for us in the United States to rewrite our history and to re-understand our, our, our own history. So Chavez rewrote the history, and he went back to Simon Bolivar, the liberator against the Spanish colonial period, in the, in the Spanish colonial period. And he helped create a whole new Venezuelan identity. Very important because up until then, Venezuela was the most sycophantically pro-U.S. country in South America. Baseball was the national sport rather than soccer, to give you an example. And I'll just make a quote from Bolivar. uh, Bolivar in, in 1829 said, The U.S. United States appears to be destined by providence to plague Latin America with misery in the name of liberty. So those are the things that Chavez brought out. Secondly, from an elite society, the Bolivarian Revolution was about an inclusive society, especially women, people of color, and youth. That also explains the intensity of the domestic opposition of the elites to the Bolivarian Revolution. For them to have a person that was an Afro-descendant person with both African and indigenous blood in him, like, like Hugo Chavez as a, the president of their country, for the elites, this was, was anathema. And that explains some of the intensity of the domestic opposition to it. Chavez was a religious person, and from the Bible, he got the special option for the working people and for poor people. The Bolivarian Revolution was also about democracy promotion. While Chavez and and his successor, Maduro, were sometimes called dictators, they did something that dictators don't usually do. You know, empowering people. Mm -hmm. One of the big priorities was to eliminate illiteracy in their country. Mm -hmm. They also promoted, and this one I think you'll like, they promoted community radio stations. Now, what dictator does that? Uh, Low-cost computers. One of the things, when I visited Venezuela in 2018, I really enjoyed, they had these internet cafes for older people who didn't really have all that technical ability to learn how to use computers and and things like that. All of these things helped create and empower people. Mm -hmm. Firstly, Chavez and the um, Bolivarian Revolution on an international scale put socialism back on the agenda. They talked about socialism for the 21st century. But that wasn't the cardinal sin of the Bolivarian Revolution. What really upset the government of the United States was that it also stood for a multipolar world and regional integration. Mm-hmm. So these are the things, the sins, so to speak, of the Bolivarian Revolution. So that was the background for you. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting because... Simon Bolivar, you mentioned in 1829, had those words. That's just a few years after the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, when the United States basically announced to the other colonialist powers or former imperial powers of Europe that 
the Western Hemisphere was our neighborhood and we were going to economically dominate it as a priority type of thing like you know you had to get a permission slip of sorts to continue imperial colonial interventions in the hemisphere or some something of that sort and i think also bolivar like you said his main thing was to integrate uh, all of these countries when you have a a situation where countries are all united towards common goals and and try to facilitate helping each other economically as well as the ALBA and you know some of these other things that Fidel and Hugo Chavez promoted that's a huge threat to investment capitals previous environment that had been created by this US foreign policy that you alluded to in which these countries are made subservient to the investment of, and the profiteering of these big, big companies and such. So in my mind, I think the reason, as you said, that Venezuela is such a, a red flag for the U.S. and really all of the, the European economic power peers that the U.S. has, i.e. the international power structure concept that we discussed last week, is because it was working towards that type of unification. And that's a very dangerous example when you start messing with the profitability of these very powerful countries. Exactly, yes. Let me ask you this, because I wanted to just pivot, because there are a number of things. I know, like, for instance, Chavez, one of the main things that he did when he came to power is he just instituted or enforced existing taxation, which really irked the wealthier, <laughs> wealthier classes and such. But also, I think the whole history of this recent period in which this, under the Trump administration, Vice President Pence picked up the phone and called this guy Juan Weado, and I thought you did a, a really powerfully instructive article back in 2019, February 7th of 2019, and it's in the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. Anyhow, in that piece, you really outlined the fraudulent nature in which a country, a, a big bully like the United States, I'm afraid to say this, but it's true that we as a country, we're such an incredibly powerfully economic and militaristic country that we can just make up the rules as we go along and then break them, that type of thing. And in those ways, you know, we started dictating to Venezuela, along with other countries, as to who their real president was. Can you walk us through first who Huiado, Juan Huiado was, where he came from, and the uh, legitimacy or the illegitimacy to his U.S.-backed claim that he was the president and leader of Venezuela post-2019? Sure, I'll tell you the story, and I'll have to emphasize that it's so strange. I'm not making this up. It really happened. So there's this fellow, his name's Juan Guaido. And there's, there's many U.S. clients in the world, and, and, and sometimes we call them, you know, puppets. But Guaido is sort of, like, unique because he wasn't even really so much a domestic product. He wasn't so much a leader in Venezuela as, as a construct of U.S. foreign policy. So uh, Juan Guaido became, in the United States' eyes, the president of Venezuela on January 23rd, 2019. And he was 35 years old. So he had gone to George Washington University in, in D.C., and he was basically trained as a U.S. US security asset. And there's a very good article in The Gray Zone about the making of Juan Guaido. It just so happened that a little bit 
uh, more than a week before he actually declared himself president of Venezuela, there was a data analysis, a reputable non-Chavista polling firm that did a poll in Venezuela. So probably more than a week before Guaido announced that he was the president of the country, 81% of the Venezuelans never even had heard of his name. <laughs> if you can imagine someone being that completely unknown. He wasn't completely unknown because he did have his picture in the press previously. It was, and I have to sort of qualify that because the picture was not so much of his face, but of his naked rear end. He was at a demonstration, and to show his disrespect to the government, he took his pants down and, and exposed his, his butt. And mm-hmm. so up until then, the thing that was known to people who knew anything about him uh, was the, the picture of, of his rear end. What happened was that he became president of the National Assembly. Venezuela has a unicameral uh, legislature, uh, just one house. And in there, their tradition is that each political party rotates to see who is the presidency. And his party, the Popular Will Party, they, came, they were in the rotation. It was the Popular Will's turn to have their person being the, the president of the assembly. So just to be clear, clear for our audience, you're saying that, so they have a national assembly that has a rotating president of a number of different parties in which Waido who comes from this, what, popular will party, a very right-wing party, even though he lacked any type of democratic precedent of backing of the people by the nature of this rotational process, assumed a fairly powerful position. Right, yes. So, mm-hmm. And he wasn't even a leader um, when he was not one of the top leaders in the party. Even. He was a you know, U.S. security a- asset in that party. He had gotten into the legislature as an alternative. Originally, he was elected into it by a proportional voting system where he only got 23% of the vote. So this was a person who never had run for national office and who was unknown to the people. But he then was appointed by this party to be the speaker, the head of the the National Assembly. And by the Venezuelan Constitution, he was third in succession to the the presidency. Mm -hmm. So if the president and vice president vacated, then he would become president. So he then got a call from U.S. Vice President Pence on January 23rd. We don't know exactly what Pence said, but we can assume that he said, Hey, Guaido, would you like to become president of Venezuela? Guaido said yes. And so the next morning, on a street corner in Caracas, Juan Guaido announced that he was the interim president of Venezuela because he did not think that the existing president and vice president were legitimate. Mm -hmm. And within minutes, U.S. President Trump congratulated him and recognized him as president. And eventually, uh, over 50 countries that were allies of the United States recognized um, Waido as president. Subsequently, he has lost a lot of those other countries. And, for instance, the European Union no longer recognizes him as president. But the um, United States still does, both 
Trump and now Biden have recognized him. Let me just remind folks that we are visiting with Roger Harris, and he's visited and, and written extensively about Venezuelan and U.S. relations. His political writings can be found at Catterpunch and Mint Press News and the Orinoco Tribune in, in Canada as well. He's also an executive committee of the U.S. Peace Council and has done a lot of research around these issues that we're talking about. We are speaking to him about an article that he actually wrote some time ago, but is hugely important because of the subject matter of this guy, Juan Wido. And th- there's a thing called lawfare, where we have developed ways in which to manipulate and influence the internal affairs of other countries' legal systems to maybe make somebody ineligible to run for office since we have problems getting the people we want into power by these elections. And so uh, this whole process with Juan Rideau and is really instructive because in your article, you go through a really, you do a really nice job, I think, of going through the constitutional issues about who was rightfully the president and who wasn't. And you also, it's important to, to know that this party that Rideau was a part of, Popular Will, is a far right-wing party, it kind of marginalized but as small as it was, it had boosters like John Bolton, Elliot Abrams, and Mike Pompeo, you write. And with those types of backings and, and people like Vice President Pence calling you on the phone, <laughs> that's really all you need. And we call that democracy. In, in addition to the, the millions and millions and millions of dollars that not just the U.S. has poured into Venezuela, but we need to remember that the people that feel the most disenfranchised and want to get not just Chavez out of power, but also his successor, Nicolas Maduro, are very, very rich. And so there's just a tremendous power-punched opposition in money, wealth, and U.S. backing. But as you in the elections history clearly indicate, they lack the Democratic majority. So I wanted to ask you to return to Juan Guido, and if you could walk us through the argument that was made about allegedly Article 233 of the Venezuelan Constitution being the basis of Juan Guido's claim to office and what the actual reality is and the legal experts that are independent have pointed towards. I thought you did a good job of elucidating that in this article. Let me just share that this article is called Juan Guido, the man who would be president of Venezuela, doesn't have a constitutional leg to stand on, written back in February of 2019. But do you mind walking us through the basics there? But before you do, Roger, we need to take a brief pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. And this is the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP. We'll be back right after this. 